Today we begin a new sermon series for November, and I've entitled it Grateful. And I've done that purposely, because as you know, I don't need to tell you every article you read, every news report you get, every time you talk to somebody, there is this lament of 2020. The year 2020 has proven to be a challenging year beyond our wildest imaginations. So many deaths, so much sickness, so much rancor, so many environmental crises, so many jobs lost. We could go on, but we need to reclaim on this day in particular God's spirit. And we need to spend the month of November as we prepare for the new church year of Advent, anticipate again the coming of the birth of Jesus. We need to prepare our hearts by filling them with gratitude. On All Saints Sunday, I can't help but remember my parents today. They have gone on to the church triumphant. May their memory be a blessing. Years ago, while I was pastor at Friends Congregational Church, United Church of Christ in College Station, Texas, um, we hosted a labyrinth walk. We, we rented a 40-foot by 40-foot canvas labyrinth. We cleared the sanctuary floor and put that down, and it fit just right. And then we invited people to come and walk in silence, the labyrinth. And uh, it was a wonderful, beautiful day, kind of like the days we're having now in Dallas. Clear skies, cooler weather, and God bless them. My 70-something, 80-something-year-old parents showed up for the walk. I'm not sure they really fully understood what they were getting into. In fact, I'm confident that they didn't. They didn't have a clue what, what it was all about, but they loved me, and they loved our church, so they came. When it came time for them to each walk the labyrinth, and multiple people can walk at the same time, uh, my dad went onto the canvas first and started walking and circling around, and then my mother followed and walked and circled around, and and then I decided I would walk with them because my mom was a little unsteady on her feet, so I wanted to kind of be there with them, and I realized that as we walked in in the securitist route, we would pass each other. And, and I got to thinking about how it reflected our life together, that my dad arrived first, and then my mom, and then me, and how our lives had passed each other on and off throughout our living. And at one point, we were walking, and I see my mom coming toward me, and before she had to take a turn away, she leaned toward me and said, am I doing it right? <laughs> it was so her. I mean, she, I, 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 as I think about it now, I believe she spent the balance of her life wanting to do things right. It was as though she couldn't accept that God loved her unless she did things right. You probably know somebody like that, and that might be even you. And I... Though she was a faithful Christian, she just had difficulty accepting her blessedness. I think many of us do too. And today's gospel doesn't help us much, does it? 
In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus launches his public ministry with what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of Jesus' ministry. The writer of the Gospel of Matthew presented Jesus as the new Moses. He went up on a mountain, just as Moses had done, and and brought his followers, disciples, and other followers with him in order to teach them. Moreover, if you look carefully at the Sermon on the Mount, you discover it's divided into five sections. And a lot of biblical scholars sort of believe that those five sections were intentional sections by the writer in order to mirror the five books of Moses that are called the Torah. And um, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, not unlike Moses bringing the law, the Ten Commandments, to the people of Israel. Jesus brings these Beatitudes. Consequently, this tends to lead us to think that Jesus' sermon and the Beatitudes, or blessings, are as centrally concerned with divine blessing. How to get it, how to keep it, what to do with it, in order to inherit it, and so on. And, and isn't that kind of how we've been taught to think about the blessings of Jesus, the attitudes of Jesus? How to get it, how to keep it, what to do with it, how to inherit it, and so on. Am I doing it right? And this may be even more pronounced for us today in the face of such difficult times. It's almost as if we can do it right, that we can reverse this trend we're in the deaths, the illnesses, the rancor, the environmental disasters, the lost jobs, the fears, the doubts, the wonder. Consequently, we try to turn Jesus' beatitudes into a how-to manual. How to win. How to gain the blessing. How to gain salvation. And that works okay, I guess, until you look closely at the beatitudes we can all probably get on board with checking the boxes that tell us, blessed are the merciful. Well, I can can do that. Blessed are the pure in heart. I, I can have a pure heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. I can be a peacemaker. I mean, who wouldn't want to see that as instructions on how we are to live? But what about the other blessings? Be poor in spirit. Mourn. Hunger and thirst. Be persecuted. Be reviled. You know, uh, I don't think Jesus wants us to go out and find a way to be meek or find a way to be persecuted or reviled. I I don't think Jesus wanted us to go out and figure out how people hunger and thirst for righteousness or mourn. So what is these blessings all about? I don't know about you, but when I read that we're supposed to rejoice and be glad about that, Well, it's not exactly what I thought the reign of heaven would be like. Until you consider who Jesus is actually saying this to. And and Jesus is actually teaching the disciples and some people who have followed him. And if you had looked out on that crowd that day, you would have seen that these were people who were poor. They were oppressed. They were marginalized. And, And the thought about blessings were that the people who had wealth and power and opportunity and all that they needed, that they weren't hungry 
These were the people who culture tells us are blessed, and, and we still think that way, don't we? These were the people who were not the politically elite, were not the religiously elite. And these are the people whom it seems that Jesus is raising up. We also need to pay attention to the grammar of the translation of the Greek to English. What we hear is, you are blessed when you are poor in spirit. You are blessed when you mourn. You are blessed when you are meek. We hear Jesus teaching as imperative, as a command, much like we view the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the commands that we are supposed to do and live. You know, it's interesting that Marcus Borg, who was a progressive Christian theologian, said that we ought to rename those commandments to the Ten Teachings. Doesn't that change your perspective? You know, we hear these, and it is as if Jesus is saying, be poor in spirit, be mournful, be meek, is using the imperative tense. In, instead of a litany of religious shoulds, when in fact it's essentially a litany of congratulations. You hear that? We read it as a litany of religious shoulds. But it's really a litany of congratulations, a map of who is truly blessed, not a set instruction about how to acquire divine blessing. Instead of an imperative command, Jesus offers his listeners and us an indicative assurance. You are blessed when you are poor in spirit. You are blessed when you mourn. You are blessed when you are persecuted. The blessing comes first. Jesus turns the reign of Caesar and all powers and principalities on its head. Instead of the power brokers and the wealth mongers being blessed, which is what they and we tend to believe, Jesus offers God's view of the realm of heaven. Jesus proclaims that blessing, blessings come first. They are the gift of God. And while many of us will hope to, but perhaps not ever find ourselves to be poor in spirit or meek. We may never hunger and thirst for righteousness. We, we may not be particularly merciful or pure in heart, peacemakers. And most of us will not find ourselves persecuted and reviled. Still, Jesus knew, and we now know better than ever, with 236, 101 deaths in the United States. We all know what it is to mourn. And yet, still, Jesus' teaching is that we are blessed. And that is why we hear the profound conclusion of this part of Jesus' teaching, that we are to rejoice and be glad, for our reward will be great in heaven. As hard as it was for those disciples in the crowd to hear and understand that, ultimately, that is the message of Jesus. We are to rejoice and be glad, for our reward will be great in heaven. So how do we make this real for us today in our world? How do we accept on the front end the blessings of God, even in the midst of all we are struggling with right now? I want to challenge us to adopt an attitude of gratitude. 
even in the midst of our broken and broken-hearted world. Let me state the obvious. The pandemic is not going away anytime soon. The election will disappoint a full half of our country. The rancor will continue. The violence against young black men and other people of color in the LGBTQ and especially the trans community will continue. The environmental problems will continue. But I want to remind you that we can change all of this. God has given us the gifts to change all of this. We can vote and we can insist on protecting the vote. We can insist on laws and policies that protect the environment, reduce the spread of the pandemic, protect human and civil rights, reduce violence in our communities. To quote the late Senator Edward Kennedy, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. So the first task we have before us is to gain an attitude of gratitude and determine what is ours to do. That's the first thing. We have to adopt an attitude of gratitude and determine what is ours to do. We can't do everything, so what is yours to do? What is mine to do? What is our church's to do? The second thing is to commit to beginning and ending our days with thoughts of gratitude. Not fear, not anxiety, not doubt, not hatred, but gratitude. Gratitude for the blessings already being poured into us. The third is to tell your story. You need to tell your story. You need to tell it to your family, to your friends, because friends, your story is the gospel. You see, because Jesus, the spirit of Jesus fully inhabits us. And so our story, as hard as it is, as good as it is, as helpless as it is, as hopeful as it is, is the gospel. And we need to tell it to each other. The fourth is to, as my dad, Papa Hutz, lived and breathed, pray for all you want and need, but regardless of the response, give thanks in all circumstances. And fifth, we are to cling to the promise of God, to be with us and in us in all circumstances, even death. As our first lesson reminds us, for the Lord with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you hear it? Those who have gone before us, and we at some point will be caught up in the air with the Lord. Remind each other of this. And remember, the blessing comes first. Think of it this way. If we distort the Beatitudes into duties, or worse, into supposed method of acquiring divine blessing, we'll miss Jesus' primary point. God's blessings are already among us. Surprising and counterintuitive, gracious and undeserved, world-turning and beautiful, and we are called to live lives that are responsive to those blessings at every single turn. And that's what all saints do. We live as the reign of heaven is at hand. Because it is. 
The great preacher and scholar Fred Craddock once put it, when it comes to divine blessing, our lives are to be lived because of, not in order to. And that's only possible if a blessing comes first. So I want you to think a moment and remind you about what a Christian funeral is made up of. It is called a celebration of life. We give thanks for the one who has gone before us. We remember the promise of the resurrection and eternity. We comfort each other with word and song and table. And we proclaim our gratefulness that God's promises are true. And doing all this, even in the midst and in the face of death, we develop an attitude of gratitude. So this morning I was practicing this in the art of dance there is actually a movement that is called attitude and I'm going to try and show you a little bit of it so uh, it is when the active leg is raised in front with a 90 degree angle to the side with a 90 degree angle or to the back with a 90 degree angle. It's called an attitude. It is one of the most classic dance movements in the history of dance. And it is one of the most beautiful when it's done by a person who has practiced dance. And in fact, Dancers can't do it effectively without having practiced. And then, even when they go to do it, they have to have complete concentration and commitment. And then, it is magnificent. In order for us to live fully, into the reign of God on earth. It will require us to practice gratitude and then to practice that gratitude in our daily living with concentration and commitment. And then, get ready. The blessings of God will abound and the reign of God. Amen.